Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. The following episode contains discussions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Iron River in Michigan's Upper Peninsula is known for its scenic lakes, hiking trails, exceptionally cold winters and dense forest. There's a variety of wildlife from moose to wolves to coyotes to elk. It's sparsely populated, and many who do live there are blue-collar workers. It's mostly quiet, and people know their neighbours. Laura Frizzo was the first female police chief in Upper Michigan and worked for the city of Iron River for almost 22 years. She knew what sorts of crimes to expect. And then came a woman named Terry O'Donnell. Towards the end of October 2014, 50-year-old Terry arrived at the police station and told authorities that her ex-partner, Chris Reagan, was missing. What would unfold over the following months and then years is a story of extramarital affairs, drug abuse and serial murder. One woman would come to be known as the Black Widow, capable of crimes far worse than anyone could have imagined. I'm Jessie Stevens, and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. Today's episode is the first half of a two-parter. I'm speaking with former police chief in Michigan, Laura Frizzo, who began an investigation to find missing person Chris Reagan and ended up uncovering an alleged female serial killer. The story has been dramatised in a docu-series called Dead North on investigation discovery. My name is Laura Frizzo. I used to be the police chief here in Iron River, but I had to make a choice. Topping our news tonight. Last scene wearing a t-shirt and jeans. Conspiracy to commit disinterment and mutilation. If those claims are true, a serial killer. I could either remain the chief or I could catch a killer. I spoke to Laura about how she did just that. It was October 27th, 2014, when Terry O'Donnell filed a missing persons report for her ex-partner, Chris. Was there concern at first for his whereabouts because he'd been missing for sort of two weeks, but often with these cases, they show up 
pretty quickly. Was there initial concern? Um, Not really on my end initially. When she came to me, I kind of assumed that maybe he had gone away for the weekend or was going away for the weekend. So my advice was, we'll do some checking. We'll see if we can connect with his family. And we'll check back with you on Monday to see if he has returned. That was kind of my initial feeling. And what was the first sign to you that something wasn't quite right here? I think that, you know, when Monday came and Terry came back to me and she had told me that she had already gone into his apartment and found that things were out of order and that something was wrong. Um, And then at that time, she also had told me how he missed an appointment for his physical checkup for a new job that, you know, I started thinking something wasn't right. And actually, let's go back because the very night that Terry came in and filed the missing person report, I did that very night made contact with Chris Reagan's boss because, you know, this case was unique in a way that I work in a small community. So having worked in a small community for 20 years, you really get to know everybody. And I did not know Chris Reagan. I did not know Kelly Cochran. These two people had only lived in our community for about a year. So I wasn't familiar with their daily activities or anything about them personally. So I did take the initiative to call his boss on my way home from work that night. And she had told me that Chris was an outstanding worker, very responsible, very dependable. And she did say he missed a day of work. Uh, that, you know, he didn't call in, which was very odd and, and out of the ordinary. But she said, you know, I heard that he had gotten a job out in, in South Carolina. So she said, I just thought maybe he decided to, to leave here. And that wasn't uncommon for that place for employees to just take a new job and leave. So she wasn't concerned initially either. So during my conversation with her, I did ask her, you know, who does he hang out with? Who Um, are his friends? What's, you know, does he frequent any place that I could check on? And she said, you know, he really didn't have a lot of people he did things with after work. He was just kind of uh, a loner. And she did tell me, you know, there were rumors around the company that he was having an affair with a married woman. And so I asked, you know, who this married woman was. And she told me, you know, her name is Kelly Cochran. And she's been having some marital issues. And then she reminded me that a month prior, she had actually called me to have me do a well-being check on Kelly Cochran because Kelly had confided in her that her husband had abused her. You know, he had threatened to kill her. And she said, and, and Kelly didn't show up for work the following day. So I remembered after she reminded me that she had called me to do that well-being check on Kelly Cochran. And because where Kelly lived was out of my jurisdiction, I had sent one of the deputies to go and do that well-being check. So at that point, I wanted to make contact with her and see if she had known where Chris could have gone, where could he be. So um I decided I'd call the deputy that that went and did that well-being check to ask him what her address was. So when I called that deputy, he was actually on a pass day. And he said, I can't remember what the exact address was, but I'll give you directions to her house. So I'm writing down the directions. In the meantime, when I had left my office for the day, 
I had turned this investigation follow-up over to my sergeant. So I, I tell her, you know, go out there and take a check on this car. You know, Chris Reagan's car was left at this park and ride, which apparently is unusual for him. And I said, take a ride out there and check it out. Give me a call. So she had called me um, as I was on the phone with this deputy. And when she called me, she said, you know, I gained access to the car just to be sure uh, there wasn't a body in the trunk, to be honest. And she said, you know, there's this, this piece of paper and it's flipped upside down on the passenger seat. And she said, I can't really decipher the meaning of it. It's directions and I'll read them to you. So she starts reading the directions on this little piece of paper and (laughs) it's the directions to Kelly Cochran's house. So when you actually get to Kelly's house and her husband, Jason, is there, there were questions asked about the affair. Was Jason aware that his wife had been having an affair with someone from work? Well, he says no. I mean, he said no. Of course, Kelly had a different version, but I actually didn't go that night. I sent my sergeant and one of the state troopers, and I actually had called and ordered that the car be towed in also and preserved for evidence. So she called me and she said, you know, when we pulled up out front of their residence, we could see the silhouette of a body, a person up in the upstairs window. So she said, they knock on the door, Jason comes to the door, they ask for Kelly, and he is very defensive. And he says, she's not here. She hasn't done anything wrong. And, you know, he's very defensive. And suddenly Kelly appears behind him. And um, the sergeant, you know, looks at him and says, why did you lie to us? And he said, because I, I know she hasn't done anything wrong. Kelly comes outside to talk with the sergeant. Kelly says, admits, you know, yes, I was seeing him. I was having an affair with him. She tells the sergeant, my husband's aware of it. He knows that it was going on. It wouldn't be till later the following day, actually, when there's an interview with Jason. And he says again, adamantly, that he did not know his wife was having an affair with Chris Reagan. And it comes out pretty soon after that Chris wasn't the only man Kelly was having an affair with. Who was the other man she was involved with at the same time? Um, At that same time, she was seeing another man from the same company where they all worked together. His name was Eric Erickson. He actually had started working there only a month or so before Chris Reagan went missing. So Kelly and Chris Reagan had started seeing each other in July of 2014. And then by September of 2014, Eric Erickson started working there and she and Eric began their affair. And what did Eric say about Kelly and Jason? Because it became clear, although he would have initially been some sort of suspect because there's overlap and therefore there's potentially motive, it became clear to you guys pretty soon that he wasn't and that he was cooperative with police. Did he have any insights into Kelly and Jason and what kind of people they were? I mean, yes, but he was misled, of course, because Kelly told him that her husband, that they were going through a, you know, a divorce, that they were separated. So, you know, he himself had actually been to uh, Kelly and Jason's home And had he known, you know, the situation, I'm quite sure he would not have put himself there, but he did. And thankfully he survived. But, you know, he was led to believe by her that Jason was highly abusive and that her life may be in danger being with him. So 
again, I don't think he would have gone there knowing the kind of people that they were. He didn't, he didn't have any idea. In fact, the neighbors, you know, when I went and interviewed the neighbors to Kelly and Jason, they were shocked. They described Kelly as the hardest working woman they've ever seen or known. You know, she'd be out there mowing the lawn of her elderly neighbors and, and bringing dinner to her neighbors. And, you know, they described the situation from what they saw as, you know, Jason being the guy that never worked, that never did anything. In reality, I learned a lot right out of the gate from reading, you know, messages on Kelly's phone, Jason's phone, reading social media messages that she had. It became clear to me very quickly that Kelly was the dominant one in this relationship and that Jason was honestly um, an abused man. There was an interesting point in in an interview with Eric where he is talking about where they hung out and where their affair sort of played out. And one of the locations ended up being quite significant. Can you talk us through what that location was and why an alarm bell was sort of sounded at that point? Yes. Kelly, in her first interview, when asked, you know, about Chris or why his car would be left at the park and ride, she immediately asked, you know, what's the park and ride? I've never heard of that. So then when it was described to her where it was, Again, she continued to deny knowledge of it ever being there. So it would have been later when reading through Eric Erickson's text messages and then having interviews with Eric that that is where she and Eric would meet, which was actually her suggestion for them to meet was at that park and ride. So that gives us a bit of an insight into her demeanor throughout. And obviously that she is caught in a few lies by that point. How would you describe Kelly? What kind of person is she? What does she look like? How did she come across in those interviews? So the very first interview that was done with Kelly and Jason was done by the Michigan State Police detectives that came in to help me, assist me with this. The reason I asked for their help was because we are a small department and we just, I knew I had a million different directions that I needed to go in. So most important things that needed to be done right out of the gate were search warrants for Chris's apartment, for his computers, for his phones, bank cards. And the other most important thing that needed to be done was a thorough interview with both Kelly and Jason. I kind of left it up to the detectives like, you know, I really would like to do the interviews, but, you know, these search warrants need to be done. What do you prefer? They preferred the interviews. So I literally was able to sit back in my office and watch and listen to the interviews while I was writing up these search warrants. And so listening to Kelly's interview and watching her demeanor, her body language, told me right out of the gate that this woman was well rehearsed, that she she knew exactly how to hold herself together. She knew how to control her body language. She knew what kind of reactions to make. It was evident to me in watching the interviews that she was holding back information. There were things that she said that needed to be, you know, dug into further that weren't. So I kind of was making mental notes the whole time about these things so that when I had the opportunity to speak with her in the future, I would be able to hit on those areas. Jason, on the other hand, he entered his interview and within 60 seconds of his interview, he broke down and was crying. And talking about his physical health and not being able to, you know, be a good husband. And 
I'm looking at that and I'm listening and I'm thinking, you know, oh Lord, this man, he's guilty. He's involved. He knows something. So it was kind of shocking to me when the interviews concluded and the detectives came out and I was expecting them to have the same reaction that I did. And they didn't. In fact, the one detective that was kind of like the lead detective at that time told me that she didn't think Jason Cochran was capable, that she didn't think these people were involved. And I I was just shocked. So I proceeded to call their boss and say, you know, thank you, but no thank you. And I just decided to go with my gut instincts. As far as what Kelly looked like to me, she didn't look like I expected her to. Chris Reagan was a nice looking man. He was, I would say, more of an upper class type person, just in the way he projected himself, what his image was. And I did expect, you know, him to have, if he's going to be having an affair with a woman, that she would be a little more attractive, a little more different personality. I think as time went on, you know, and and speaking with Chris's son, there were some attributes that Kelly had that Chris was attracted to. Kelly was not a totally unattractive woman. She really could make herself look attractive at times. She was very well-built. You know, she um, was athletic in a, in a sense that she enjoyed, you know, hiking and fishing. And Chris was a total outdoorsman. And so that probably was attractive to him. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Jesse Stevens. I'm speaking with Laura Frizzo, former police chief in Michigan, who investigated a missing person and uncovered an alleged female serial killer. You mentioned that you also obtained a search warrant at around the same time they were being interviewed. What did you find when you searched their house? Oh, the search of their house actually didn't take place until a couple of months later. And the reason for that is because we had to have enough probable cause to you know, get the search warrant approved to do a search. The search that we did initially, the search was Chris's apartment, Chris's vehicle. He also had a truck that was left at his apartment complex. So we had that towed in as well. So all of the search warrants done initially were for his computer, his cell phone that was left in the apartment, his apartment itself, and any other kind of records, credit card, anything that would give us some type of lead. So what we did learn right away from the search warrants we did, we also pulled video cameras from different places around his apartment. And one of the cameras from a gas station that was located within just a couple of blocks from his apartment was we see him pull in, which would have been right after he finished work on the 14th of October. And he pulled in and and put gas in his car and left. And that would have been the last time anyone saw him. And we got that, you know, we knew he got gas around that time because of the bank records and showing his debit card use. So from there, you're kind of piecing together that Kelly had to have been one of the last people to see him based on text messages and the nature of their relationship. Eventually, you do get that search warrant and you have people come in and search the house top to bottom. What was found there? Well, when we did that first search warrant in March of 2015, there was a lot of things found. And 
right out of the gate, the um, Michigan State Police lab personnel that were there collecting evidence called me in and showed me an area that was on the ceiling above the front entrance of the residence, which, you know, was like a splatter pattern, of course, indicating that someone could have been injured there, hit with something. They were getting a positive read for blood with what they were using at that time, luminol. So, of course, I was very, very happy that they had found potential blood evidence or DNA evidence. And actually, you know, with that initial search, there were a lot of samples that were taken. Floor samples, there were samples from the door, there were ceiling tiles and other items that, you know, I thought were going to be very indicative of their involvement. Other things taken from that search, another phone that Kelly had, which ended up giving me information to basically learn about the kind of person she was, which was very helpful, a computer and things of that nature. There was also a number of weapons, which you say also indicated what kind of people the couple were. There's suggestion mounting that they've become involved. What sort of tactics did you use in an attempt to elicit a confession? You did a series of interviews with them both and often separately to try and see if they would turn on each other. What sort of tactics do you employ to try and have someone confess to what they've possibly done? As sneaky ones. (laughs) You know, this is that time where, unfortunately, the more you know how to understand manipulation, the better you are at being able to use it against people who are highly manipulative like they were. So you kind of have to play their own game sometimes to try and, and just, even if you don't get the answer you're looking for, it could be a reaction, it could be body language, it could be many things that kind of tell you you're on the right track. So my first interview with Kelly and Jason actually was before the search warrant. I had some questions I wanted answers to. I wanted to see how they would respond to the way that I presented those questions. So I called Jason in first. And and what I did is I just kind of randomly showed up at their home. And this was in November. So it was a couple of weeks after the initial interviews that they had done. I told them I would really like to speak to both of them together, but separately. I asked Kelly if she wouldn't mind if I take Jason first. She was very hesitant, but they both were, but agreed. But again, I presented myself as not looking at them as suspects. I presented as looking at them as, you know, helping me, explaining that sometimes you might know something that you don't think is important, but it is. And the only way we can figure that out is by talking about these things. So Jason agreed to come and I hit on some things that he had said in his first interview to the detectives from the Michigan State Police, such as he had told them that he walks a lot. And that, you know, he'd walk into town and he made a comment during his interview about seeing Kelly's truck at, a, at an apartment complex and kind of wondering, you know, why she was there. But again, denying he knew about the relationship or the affair. And of course, I'm listening, knowing that Chris Reagan's apartment is very much off the beaten path that Jason would have taken on this walk that he explained he takes every day. So I wanted to, of course, find out what prompted him to walk in that direction. And I wanted to just, you know, see what his answers would be to questions like this. And of course I got what I wanted because he wasn't prepared and he didn't really have explanations for any of it. And the more that I questioned or put him in that position to not be prepared to answer, the more defensive he became. 
So I felt like, you know, I had achieved my goal by doing that. Kelly, on the other hand, you know, she was a little bit more tricky because she's very guarded all the time. And I remember saying to my secretary after I had interviewed her that I know there's no doubt in my mind that these people were responsible for his disappearance. And I said that, you know, I just feel like they've also done this before. There's no way that they would be as well orchestrated had they not ever done something like this before. And so basically at that point, which was again, you know, mid-November, we were kind of looking at this like, we need to figure out what brought them to Upper Michigan from Indiana. We need to know why they would place themselves in an area so far from home, so desolate. What purpose was there for that? You know, and I did ask Kelly that question in her interview. And her response to me was, Jason's, he's got medical issues and Michigan has the medical marijuana law now where, you know, he could get a a card and he can utilize the medical marijuana. And of course that didn't fly with me because, you know, where they were living in Indiana is only about 40 minutes from the Michigan border for, you know, lower Michigan. So if that were the case, you know, they wouldn't have had to gone seven hours into upper Michigan. So at that point too, I had my secretary do some digging, you know, on the internet see if there's any unsolved homicides in the area that they came from that would have occurred around the time they left or shortly before. And so we started looking at things like that and we did uncover some things. You know, we uncovered an unsolved homicide that occurred basically in the town that they were living in and it occurred two months prior to them moving. And it's still unsolved to this day. But, you know, as we would find out when we did do that search warrant in March, we found ammunition for weapons that they didn't have. The one, you know, significant piece to that is that they had ammunition for a weapon that was used in that unsolved homicide. And it was an off-brand ammunition that, you know, it's kind of rare. So um, in speaking, I mean, there were many times that I reached out to that police department to try and speak to the investigator. But unfortunately, a lot of departments don't want to share their information. And I mean, really, that's the only way you can solve a crime is by sharing your information. So we did learn later that the suspect vehicle seen leaving that incident was described as like a white SUV type vehicle that someone saw speeding away from the scene of that homicide. And of course, Jason and Kelly are driving a white extended cab pickup. So she's got other victims out there. I'm not convinced that this isn't one of them. But from that point forward, I knew I was dealing with something much bigger than I initially thought. That's the end of part one of my conversation with Laura Frizzo. Join me next week for part two. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast hosted by me, Jessie Stevens. Our audio producer is Ian Camilleri and our executive producer is Zoe Ferguson. Ferguson. 